0: to cover and not a lot of time to cover it in. Um, We are in the third week of our series called Meant for Good. This is a study that, or a, a series that's been on Joseph's life, but more important than being just on Joseph's life, it is on our lives. And more important than just how God moved in Joseph's life, it's about how God moves in our life. And this series has been for me personally an incredible series in that it has taken a lot of the things that I know I believed, the theology that I knew in my head, and moved it from my head to my heart. And so a lot of these series or this series in the sermons have been something that, man, it hasn't been quick. Instead, it's taken a lot of time. And this sermon today was one of those that I churned and mulled over and worked over and just kept all the way through the week. And I believe that as a result, it's moved from my brain to my heart. And my prayer over you today is that the same would happen for you with this series. So the idea behind Meant for Good, it started two weeks ago. Uh, Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, where it says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so we take that scripture, and, and, and let me say, if you missed l- that week or if you missed last week, I, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those, because those are foundational for us as we move forward. And if you have a misunderstanding, and many people do, of Genesis 50 verse 20, it will be a misunderstanding of how God moves in your life, and it can help corrupt your view of God, And we don't want that. And so I'm going to encourage you to go back. If you missed it, listen to the podcast, go out to our website, listen to it on the way to work. Um, and because we can't re-preach it. Okay, so that was the first week. Second week, we talked about the beginning of Joseph's life, chapter 37 of Genesis. And um, there we talked about the pit. And today we're in Genesis chapter 39. So if you would grab your Bibles today and open them up to Genesis chapter 39. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some that are spread out throughout the pews so you can read along and you won't miss a thing. Grab one of those Bibles and open it up to Genesis chapter 39 today. And if last week was about the pit, this week is about the passion. And by the passion, I do not mean the passion of the Christ. I mean the passion of Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39. Here's where it begins. Genesis 39, verse 1. And I'm going to read, and I'm going to read fast, and you're going to have to keep up. Because I want to leave some time at the end for what the Lord wants to do. Verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian Master. So, verse one tells us what the circumstances are, what went before, and so if for some reason you did not read verse th- chapter thirty-seven before you got to chapter thirty-nine, verse one gets you caught up. Here's where Joseph is, and it says multiple times kind of how it happened. He was brought down to Egypt. At the end, it says the Ishmaelites brought him down. It says that he was bought by the ca- an officer of Pharaoh. The word "officer" there, by the way, talking about Potiphar, is eunuch, and it could mean eunuch in the literal sense, or it could mean just li- like it had become just an officer in the court um, over time. Or it could mean that he was a literal eunuch. We don't know. The captain of the guard um, it refers to his position. And we don't know exactly what that position was. We, we assume that it was something to do with the military. Um, and it, it obviously shows that he's in a position of great authority. Okay, so it says that he was brought down. He was sold to Potiphar. This is Joseph's circumstances. This is what's gone before. This is what is. Verse 2 talks about what will be. Okay, verse 2 then says the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So immediately, even before it talks about his first day in, in, uh, in uh, Egypt, it talks about, it doesn't say whether he had to learn Egyptian. It doesn't talk about uh, what the first day was like. It doesn't talk about the camel ride down. What it does talk about is the fact that before it even begins, let us have established this fact. The Lord was with Joseph, and in everything he did, he was successful. Okay, so whereas verse 1 talks about the circumstances, verse 2 talks about what's going to become of those circumstances. And and to be clear, um, it doesn't tell us how long until he was moved into positions of authority. It kind of gives the impression in verse 2 that maybe he started as like an outside slave in the field, and then he eventually moves... And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So he maybe gets promoted right away. We don't know if it's right away or if it's after a time. One thing we do know, according to chapter 37, verse 1 and 2, Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. We know that according to chapter 41, verse 46, that he's 30 when Potiphar takes him out of prison and elevates him to the second most powerful position in the land. And we know according to chapter 41, verse 1, that he was in prison for two years, which means this. You do the math: thirty minus seventeen minus two. It equals eleven. Eleven years is the amount of time that chapter thirty-nine takes. And in fact, if you get to verse eleven, you see that verse eleven and through the end of the chapter takes place in one day, which means verses one through verses ten takes place over a period of 11 years, and we do not know what the distribution of that time is. We don't know how long he was in the field before he went into the house. We don't know how long it is until he's elevated to a position of authority, but we do know if you read this passage and you think, well, this must have taken place over six months. It didn't. It took place over 11 years time. Okay? Told you I was going to go fast. It says, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So Potiphar's no dummy. The name Potiphar means the gift of the sun god, Ray. His parents thought very highly of him, apparently, and he is named Potiphar. We know that he's an officer, that he's a position of authority, and apparently he's also very smart because he looks at Joseph and he sees that everything that Joseph touches turns to gold. He sees that everything he puts in Joseph's hands ends up succeeding. Well, what does he do then? He puts more in his hands. If he's faithful with little, then you give him more and he ends up with much. And you see this process take place where he keeps putting more and more into Joseph's hands. Joseph's a leader. And I will say as a leader that it is very nice when there are people who prove themselves with little and you can entrust them with more. So he does. He trusts him with more. Verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and in field. Verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So he gives him all of it, and he says, all right, now let's see what happens, and it turns out that it works out for Pharaoh. So, re- Or not for Pharaoh, for Potiphar. So to me, I hope, and I don't know what the distribution, how long he's in each position as he's being elevated. We don't know if it's meteoric. It seems pretty meteoric to me, like he shoots up and he shoots up quick. But we don't know. I hope for Potiphar's sake, it's early on because the more he handed over to Joseph, the earlier, then the the longer he had where it said that he didn't have to worry about a thing except the food that he ate. Again, this is an incredible thing. There is nothing like delegating authority and some responsibility to somebody and then have to walk alongside of them and walk them through it. It is an entirely different thing where you can entrust something to somebody and walk away and watch it succeed. And that's what happens in Potiphar's case when he hands things off to Joseph. Verse 6, though, continues on. It doesn't stop there. There's a little more to verse 6. Here's what it says. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Okay, so it's about to turn. And the word that's translated as handsome here is the word beautiful. In fact, it's only used two other times in Scripture of men, David and Absalom in 1 and 2 Samuel. It is often, however, used to refer to women. Many women in Scripture are referred to as this word, including Sarah. And including Rachel, Joseph's mother. So in other words, he got his good looks from his mama. And most of the time, that would be a blessing, right? In this case, though, it seems as if it is a curse. Because, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. And again, we don't know how long it took for her to recognize Joseph. The words that are used here for cast his eyes, some translate as she, uh, 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 caught her," he caught her eye. Sometimes it's translated as, as he, she cast her eyes upon him, but she notices Joseph. And, and, and it says that after a time, so probably this is after he was elevated to that highest spot. It probably wasn't while he was working out in the field in the lowest spot. In fact, I would imagine that as a result of his position of authority, she pays attention to him. I doubt she probably would have paid much attention to him before he was the most important person in the house save Potiphar. But at this point, she does. She notices him. And if he is a eunuch, then their marriage would of course been just a legality, just a formality. But regardless, it's obvious what she wants from him. Lie with me, she says. And it doesn't say from that point, how long she pursues him, but she pursues him. And then it says in verse, uh, the very next verse, it says his response, verse nine. But he refused and said to his master's wife. And by the way, she we don't even know her name; she, she's just called his master's wife. His master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, "Lie with me," verse eight. But he refused and said to his master's wife, "Behold." Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great witness or wickedness and sin against God? So he gives some reasons why he's not going to do it. My rise was meteoric. He has put everything under my charge. I'm in charge of this entire household, and nobody is greater in this house. He says, not even your husband Potiphar is greater in this house than me. And he has only kept one thing back from me, and that's you. So then how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So again, according to this verse, it says that this is a continual thing. We don't know how long it lasted. And again, we, don't have, we know that the whole period was 11 years. We don't know if it was five years of it. We don't know if it was eight years of it. We don't know if it was just like six months or a year. It gives the impression like it wasn't just Monday to Wednesday. Like this is he, she, she was pursuing him for some time. Day after day she approached him. Day after day he refused her until one day. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Verse 13. And as soon as she saw... That he, she had in, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So this is the second time that a garment is peeled away from Joseph. And this is the second time that that garment is then used to deceive against Joseph. And it says here that there's this really interesting change in her, that she goes from loving or lusting to hating. It doesn't say when it happens, but you can see it happen immediately. In fact, I believe it happens right in verse 13. And there's a really interesting parallel, by the way, between this and the story between Amnon and Tamar. We talked about that about a year ago. And the fact that he wanted her, he couldn't have her, and so he raped her, and his love turned from love to hatred. He hated her even more than the love that he had for her, is what it says. So pretty quickly, there's this transition, and and there are some similarities here. There, uh, there's this love or lust that turns to hatred. Same thing here. There, there is rape. Here, there is the accusation of rape, though it is false. So there's some really interesting parallels, and I believe that transition happens in verse 13. Here's what it says happens in verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house. So she's holding that garment in her hand, and she looks at it, and she realizes that she is not just holding his garment in her hand. She is holding His life in her hand. Because now it's not just her word versus his word. Now she has some proof to back it up. He was obviously there if she has his garment. So she stands there holding that garment and what she could not have power over. Now she has power over. And she immediately begins to cry out and call out to the servants. And then the very next verse is really very interesting to me. Verse 16 After she tells it to the servants, here's what she does. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. What did that look like? She climbed back into bed and took the garment that she had peeled off of him and laid it down next to her, waiting for Potiphar to come home. Picture, visualize that moment setting it just right beside her in the bed. And he does come home. Here's what it says happens. Then she laid the garment by her until his master came home, verse 17, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me, and fled out of the house. Tells a similar, very similar story, few little changes, which is expected if you're not, if you're making it up, but for the most part tells him the same story that she told the servants. And and yet there's a couple of things that are really interesting here. Number one, the fact that she calls him the Hebrew servant. This is only the third time in scripture that you see that word Hebrew. The other time it's referring to Abraham when he's in the Land of uh, his sojourning is what it calls it. And the word refers to it means the one who is from beyond. The one who is a foreigner. The one who doesn't belong here. The one who is not of us. Right? So this is the third time you find this word in scripture. She uses it two of those three times. So she's pointing out, this guy does not belong here. And her accusation, by the way, is masterful. Look at her accusation and the way she accuses Joseph. She says, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. She's not just accusing Joseph here. She's accusing Potiphar of bringing this into her house. Well done, ma'am. I mean, really think about it. Now, if Potiphar does not respond the way she wants him to respond, he's at fault. She has painted him right into a corner. So it says, here's his response. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, a lot of people think that when he talks about this anger, because even it says that when does he when is his anger kindled? When he hears the word that your servant did this. There are many people, in fact I would say the majority, who say that the anger that's kindled here is not actually at Joseph but at his wife. Like, maybe he doesn't believe her, but in fact, he's mad at her because of what has happened now. He's losing this trusted servant that everything he puts into his hand is gold, right? But we don't know that that's the case. Maybe he's mad at Joseph. Maybe he's mad at his wife. It is interesting that it says that he puts him in prison where the king's prisoners were confined. Skip down to chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense Against their Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his, with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Verse 3 And he put them in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So we, we have this picture that he sends Joseph off to this penitentiary on the other side of Egypt, or maybe just on the other side of the city. But where is it? It says that the king's prisoners were kept and cupbearer and the baker were sent to the prison that is where? In the custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Who's the captain of the guard? It's Potiphar. So that means that Joseph is either, we don't know for sure if he's sent down to the basement, to like a basement level dungeon. We don't know if it's, if it's that there's another little house on the property with bars that is used as a jail. We don't know any of those things, but we know he's not sent afar off. It's, it's he sends him to this little jail that's somewhere on his property associated with his house. And, and really, truly, when you look at his response... Here's a position of authority, he's in a position of authority, and a slave who belongs to him attempts to rape his wife. Why doesn't Joseph just immediately lose his head, right? Potiphar seems to be like, okay, yeah, all right, we'll just put him in jail. We don't know that for sure, and maybe that's not true. It doesn't really matter, but I just want us to really grasp what's going on here. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. It doesn't talk about his first day in prison. It doesn't talk about how he had to sweep the cell. It doesn't talk about his transition. All it says, is, as soon as it says what his circumstances are again, it says then what happens next and where this is going. What does it say? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did... Lord made succeed. So the same thing. And again, we know that he's in prison for two years. We don't know what the distribution of those years are. We don't know how long he's at the bottom of the totem pole and how long until he gets to the top. We don't know any of those things. I personally think that probably Potiphar sent word in order to decrease the learning curve of the keeper of the prison said, listen, put some stuff in this guy's charge and you'll see what happens. But we don't know. We don't know. Doesn't tell us. What is interesting is that it says in this chapter 39, no less than eight times, eight times it says something to the effect of that the Lord was with him, that the Lord was blessing him, that no matter what was in his hands, it was blessed, that it was taken care of, and that the people around him didn't have to worry about it anymore. No less than eight times in chapter 39 of Genesis it says that. Very interesting. Now, there are many things that we can take from this chapter. I think we could take some lessons on leadership. I think you could look at Potiphar and see how he distributes and delegates authority and you can make a good solid case for that quite honestly I don't want to though because I think there's probably a little bit too much preaching which shakes the gospel and makes it into a lesson on leadership. So I'm not going to go there. I think we could talk about how to survive temptation and what to do when we're tempted. I mean, you can read that and you can see from verse uh, uh, 7 all the way down through verse 11. It's pretty clearly there, but you can read it and you can see that. I think you can talk about how we work for the Lord and as a result that it's a lesson and it teaches others about God if we work as unto the Lord in everything that we put our hand to. He blesses us and takes care of us. I think you could talk about that. We could talk about the fact that we should not let our circumstances dictate our reality and where we go from here. I think you can make a good solid case for that. But there's something else that when I read this story... Catches my attention. And it's the reason why I had to mull over it all week long. Because there's something missing here. I don't know if you noticed it too. But again, if it says in, th- in chapter 39, no less than eight times, that God was with Joseph, and that God blessed Joseph, and that Joseph was successful in all he did and everything he put his hand to, and he continued to receive additional. If it says that no less than eight times, and yet he starts chapter 39, verse 1, with his circumstance being that he's a slave. And he starts chapter 40, verse 1, with his circumstance being that he is a prisoner. How does that work? How do you take that kind of advancement? How do you take that kind of blessing? And the blessing of the Lord never once changes here. How do you take zero? Say he starts at ground zero. See, Say he starts as a slave, and that's zero. And then you add to that all this blessing of the Lord, all, all the fact that he is blessed and all he puts his hand to, yet he never takes shortcuts and continues. Every time he's entrusted with a little bit, it becomes more because of the fact that he's faithful. How do you take zero plus one 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 plus one, plus one and it equals negative one? How do you have all that blessing all that faithfulness, and end up the next chapter being a step backwards from where he was in the beginning of the, first, the last chapter. And you could say, okay, well, it was the temptation of Potiphar's wife, except he succeeded in that temptation. He was faithful in that temptation. So it can't be that. And I guess you could say that it was a lack of justice, misjustice against him. I guess you can make a case for that, except for the fact that, man, can that really account for uh, undoing all of the blessing of God? How can a lack of justice, a misjustice against Joseph, I mean, what, I thought that it was, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So how can that account for him actually taking a step backwards when everything else is him taking a step forwards? It can't. Okay, so it can't be that. So maybe you would say, well, it's just the plan of God. It's the sovereign will of God for Joseph. And yeah, of course, that's like the get-out-of-jail-free jail, jail free card, right? Like, you can use that all the time. It doesn't make sense, God's plan. Except for the fact that, okay, did he really need to be in the prison to meet the cupbearer and the baker? Couldn't they have just stopped by Potiphar's house? And, and really... Did he need to be in prison or even talk to the cupbearer or the baker at all? Why didn't Potiphar just have a dream? Why didn't he just report it to Pharaoh? So there's something more here. And what's so beautiful about Scripture is that it may not tell us what that missing factor is that takes 8 to negative 1. But it does tell us in other places. Like Psalm 105. Psalm 105. It tells us, and it te- talks exactly about this time and what is really going on. Verse sixteen, it begins: When he, he, he being God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Verse eighteen: His feet were hurt with fetters; his neck was put in a collar of iron. Verse nineteen. Until what he had said came to pass the word of the Lord tested him verse 20 the king sent and released him the ruler of the people set him free he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom okay so verse 18 tells us what it was like when he was on his way to Egypt and if you thought he was on the back of a camel camel sightseeing he wasn't he was in shackles on the back of that camel And so we know that verse 18 is talking about the beginning of him going into slavery. And if we know that verse 20 is talking about the moment that Pharaoh pulls him out of the prison and elevates him to the second most highest, the second highest place in the land, that means verse 19, which is right in between, is the 13 years in between those two. So here's what's really going on according to Psalm 105, verse 19, during those 13 years, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So what's going on while Joseph is in prison? He's being tested. And what's going on while he's in Potiphar's house? He's being tested. Wait, that doesn't make sense, though. So you're telling me that the temptation of Potiphar's wife was a test from God? Yep. Yep. Well, wait a second, Pastor Allen. James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. You even talked about it last week. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God can't be the one who tempted Joseph. Yep. Wait. No, you just said that when she was approaching him and tempting him, That that was a test by God. Yep. Okay, now I'm confused. Is it a temptation or a test? Yep. Okay. What's the difference between a temptation and a test? Now we're getting somewhere. What is the difference between a temptation and a test? Well, a temptation is designed to weaken us. Okay? We know where temptation comes from. We just read it. It's not from God. A temptation comes from Satan. It comes from within us, that evil desire within us. And the ultimate result is that it weakens us, according to this, to the point. And even as it says in verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If Joseph thought when Potiphar's wife was approaching him that if he just gave in one time, ah, that would make this go away. No more problem. Nope. Because temptation is about putting within us a pattern of disobedience with cascading effects that leads to our death and our destruction. A temptation is designed to weaken us. A test is designed to strengthen us. That same chapter of James 1, verse 3, it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, or steadfastness in the ESV. So a test strengthens us, designed by God to strengthen us, while a temptation is designed by Satan to weaken us. That's the difference, or at least the first of the differences. A temptation is designed to conceal the truth. I have never once been tempted, either by Satan or by my own sinful nature, where Satan led with a contract. Now, please be aware of the cascading effects of this sin. Read them in advance so that you know what you're buying it into. Never once has my sinful nature led with while being drawn into sin. Now, remember Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin are death. Now that we've got that out of the way, would you like to proceed? Never once. No, that's not the way it works. The sinful nature inside of us, Satan himself in front of us, says, oh, it's just a little thing. Oh, it just looks so appealing. Don't mind what's under the rug. Let's just put that around behind the corner and cover it with a curtain. We don't need to talk about that. Temptation is designed to conceal the truth. A test is designed to reveal the truth. Exodus chapter 8 verse 2 talks about this. And it talks about how when God was testing the Israelites, he did it in order to reveal what was in their hearts. And one of the best scriptures I think that illustrates this is in Luke chapter 22 and there in verse 31, here's what's going on. This is right at the end of Jesus' life, and what, is he, what happens? He talks to Peter, and Peter says, I'm with you, man, right to the end. Here's what he says, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. Okay, wait a second. This is before the temptation comes. This is before the test begins. And Jesus tells him how it's going to turn out. Who is this test revealing the truth to? It's not Jesus. He tells them, here's what's going to happen. You're going to fall away. But when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. He already knows where it goes afterwards. This test reveals not to God what's going on inside Peter's heart. It reveals to Peter what's going on inside Peter's heart. See, when you realize, Peter, that you're not as strong as you think you are, when you realize that the only chance you've got is the grace of God, turn back and strengthen your brothers. When you revealed within your own heart what's going on, then turn back. See, I think most of the time testing we get wrong. We think that it's revealing to God what's going on inside of us. And I think in reality it's revealing to us what's going on inside of us. We know according to Hebrews that everything is open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we have to give account. He doesn't need to know what's in our heart. He already does. But we do. See, a test is designed to reveal the truth. Whereas a temptation is designed to conceal the truth. There's a big difference between the two. One comes from Satan while one comes from God. So how in the world do these things relate? I'm glad you asked. We know exactly how they relate. And I believe that this is a truth that is deep and and difficult for us to understand. And it took me all week to be able to really dig in and get it from my head to my heart. I believe it goes back to Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Where it says, as for you, you desired evil. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Hear this. God takes temptation and turns it into testing. If we allow him, God turns temptation into testing. Who was it that was tempting Peter? Who was it that wanted to sift him like wheat? And yet that temptation while he gave in and was shown his own weakness, it turned into something that did not weaken him, but instead strengthened him. And even as you read through the Bible, as you look in Exodus uh, chapter 16, verse 4, I mean, as you look in uh, these other scriptures that talk about the testing and, and how testing works, God allows temptation in the same way that he allows suffering in our lives. He does. But when he does, here's the tremendous promise that we have. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12, it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way to escape that you may be able to endure it. So he does not. He puts limit on it. And as that temptation comes, we know that, it is, that God is protecting us even in the midst of that temptation. And then if we will allow it, he can take what the enemy designed for evil and turn it for good. When we realize our weakness, even when we fail, God can take that and turn it around because we realize even greater our need for grace. And when we have turned back, We can strengthen others. And I don't think that's all that's here in Genesis chapter 39. I think there's one other really deep truth that I feel like we need to realize from this scripture. A lot of times we think that the testing of God, because we know that Joseph is being tested here. But over and over and over again in this scripture, it says that he's being blessed by God. A lot of times we think that the testing it's when we're going through difficult times it's when there's hard times in our life and it seems like man one thing keeps happening after the other after the other after the other and we stop and we go god is this is this you testing me we think that it's in our suffering alone that god tests us but god tests us in blessing as much as in suffering Over and over again you see in this story that Joseph is blessed and blessed and blessed. And that temptation, even think about the temptation that he faces. What does he say? What are the reasons why he can't give in? Well, he says that, well, you know, I've had a meteoric rise. I'm in charge of this entire house. In fact, there is nothing that I am not in charge of. There's no one greater in this house, not even your own husband Potiphar. And he has only put one thing outside of my reach, you. Wait a second. Aren't those all of the reasons why he should give in to the temptation? I've had a meteoric rise. I'm over this entire house. There's no one greater in this house, not even Potiphar. And he has only put one thing outside my reach. Shouldn't that make him want it all the more? Isn't that the very definition of lust? The one thing we cannot have that we want. Don't you see the similarities here between Adam and Eve and them in the Garden of Eden? It is in the blessing of Joseph that we are seeing the testing. And, 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 and then you look at scriptures, and it talks about even when the Israelites were in the desert, where was it that God was testing them? In the provision of manna, it says, in the provision of manna, they were tested. In God's blessing, they were t- tested. If there was a scripture you were going to write down today, let it be this, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21. Here's what it says. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. So, in the same way that when you heat silver and you recognize what's going on inside of it, in the furnace, you recognize what's inside of gold, you wanna know what's in a man? Here's how you can know. And at first, I thought this was talking about us praising God, but it's not. It's when we receive praise. You wanna know what's going on inside somebody's heart? You wanna know what's really happening and what kind of person that is? You wanna test them? Give them a little praise. Pat him on the back and say, you're the best at that. I've never seen anyone better. Wow, you just do such a great job. You want to test somebody? Give them a little fame. And you'll find out what's really going on inside that heart. It's in blessing that we're tested. And Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. You want to know what's going on inside of someone's heart. The most gut-checkable thing is money. And you might say in the midst of suffering, oh God, are you testing me? And I will tell you, I don't know. But if you are in the midst of blessing, and God is pouring out blessing on you, and you come to me and say, is God testing me? I will say, 100%, I am absolutely assured of the fact that God is testing you. Why? Because he is giving you very little, and there's very much to come. You're seeing the very little right now, and there is very much. And maybe that's in this life, and maybe it's not. But we have this assurance that the kingdom we are a part of does not end here but continues on. And when that day comes, the testing that we are undergoing with very little and just a little blessing now will determine how much we're tested or trusted with in the next kingdom. So Joseph is tested by God in the blessing that God gives him. And in the same way, we think... That it's only in our suffering, but yet it's in our blessing. And we think, okay, I'm blessed because I survived the testing. No, you're blessed because God is testing you. How are you going to use the funds that he has given you? Will you show yourself faithful now so that you can be entrusted with more later? And isn't that the story of Joseph? Isn't that what's going on in chapter 39? He's entrusted with very little in Potiphar's house. He's entrusted with very little in the prison And soon he's to be entrusted with the entire kingdom. It's all about the testing of God. Testing designed to reveal the truth and show us what's in our own heart. Testing that's designed to strengthen us. See, God takes our weakness. He takes our failures. He takes the temptations and even our own sins. And he can, even in those things turn them for good. He can take what the enemy designed to weaken us and turn it into something that strengthens us. He can take what the enemy designed to conceal the truth from us and can actually reveal the truth to us. It all depends on whether or not we let him. I love Psalm 105. It's a great passage. Psalm 105, verse 19, and until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. But you know what I like even more than verse 19? Verse 18. Verse 18 says, His feet were hurt with fetters, and his neck was put in a collar of iron. And yet your translation might say something entirely different. That's because of the fact that most translations interpret this one verse totally different than all the other translations. And the reason for that is that it's all over the map because of the fact that it's really kind of ambiguous what's being said here. The word that's used for neck in the ESV is actually throat, and really it means more than throat, it means our soul. So some translations say that your entire, his entire being, his entire soul was being put in a bondage of iron. But yet, here's the thing. It's really not even clear, because some translations interpret it a totally different way because of the fact that it's not clear whether his soul is going into the iron or the iron is going into the soul. Some translations go at it this way. His feet were hurt with fetters, and iron was put in his soul. God took the iron collar around his neck. That thing meant to bind him. And made iron in his soul. My prayer over you today. Would be whatever it is that the enemy keeps throwing in your face. Whatever that temptation might be. No matter how many times you've messed it up. And how many times you've sinned and fallen back into the same thing. That God would take. What the enemy desired to bind you, to bring about your death and destruction and turn it into something that makes you even more reliant upon him, which puts iron in your soul. That that which was intended to weaken you would make you stronger. That that which the enemy meant for evil, God would say, I meant that for good. I take what the enemy has done and I turn it around. And just like Joseph, that in the midst of blessing as you are tested, you would show yourself faithful with very little so that you can be entrusted with more. And just like Peter, though you may fall, though you may fail, when you have turned back, you will strengthen your brothers. See, God takes our weakness, he takes our failure, and he turns it into our strength if we allow him. And what an assurance we have. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the high priest we have knows exactly what it's like to be us. He knows all about temptation, yet somehow was able to stay without sin, And then God took him who knew no sin and made him sin in order that we would be the righteousness of God. What an incredibly beautiful thing. So that when we come to him, we don't come to him as though we're just appealing to a higher power who has no idea, but we come to the one who knows just what it's like to be us. He knows just what it's like to be tempted. So we know that as we approach that throne, we find grace. May that drive iron into your soul today. May that take what the enemy designed for evil and should have weakened you and make you so much stronger. Father, I thank you for the story of Joseph. I thank you for chapter 39 and 40 where we find his testing not in suffering but in blessing. And we find in his temptation something that you took which was intended for evil from the pits of hell. And you turned it into something that he was tested in. In order that he could be entrusted with very much. You take all the, Satan must be so mad. Everything he does, all the suffering, all the trials, all the temptation. Every time you turn it around. How in the world must he not be angry? You turn what the enemy intended for evil into good every time. Whether it's suffering or whether it's temptation. You turn that around for good. And I thank you for your testing us. I thank you that when we are being blessed, oh God, we know 100% you're testing us. Because there is more ahead. What we've got right now is very little. And there's very much to come. God, right now I pray for any in this room who has had a wrong view of you, oh God. Who have somehow thought that you were the author of their temptation who somehow thought you were the author of their suffering, who somehow thought that you were the author of their evil. Oh God, that is such a corrupted view of you. You're the one who comes along and takes all that evil and all that temptation and all that suffering and turns it for good. And even the temptation, even our own failures, even what we do to ourselves, you turn for good if we allow it. Father, right now I know that the greatest test of our hearts is whether or not we will accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That great high priest that we have who was tempted every way that we have been tempted yet was without sin. Oh God, I know that he who was tempted in every way understands me. But more I recognize that even though he was not He did not sin, you made him sin in order that I might have the righteousness of God. And I pray for every person in this room, if there are any here who have not accepted that on their behalf, what Jesus Christ did right now, I just pray that you would lay hold of their hearts and you would say, I know where you've been, I know what you've done, I know what the enemy intended for evil, and guess what? I can turn that for good. Jesus Christ came in order that they, you might have salvation. God, may we grasp that not at a head level, not at a thought level, but deeply in our hearts. May we lay hold of that truth. You take what the enemy designed for evil and you turn it into good. Truly, truly you're the only one who can do that. You have no rival. We thank you for it. In your name, Jesus. If you would, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. Everybody in here, just for a moment, and the reason why is it's all about examining the heart. It says that man looks at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But here's the thing, we often don't even know what's going on inside of our heart. So, Lord, we just pray right now that you would help us to look inside of our hearts. And right now, even as your eyes are closed and your head is bowed, I'm just going to ask that you would take this opportunity that though your eyes, external eyes may be closed, that your internal eyes would be wide open and you would let the Holy Spirit speak to you about what's going on inside of your heart. If you are here right now and you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you and saying, I know what you've done. I know where you've been. And Jesus went through that same exact thing. He was tempted every way that you were. Yet he was without sin and then he took your sin on him. This morning, your sin does not have a bearing on your ultimate reality if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your past does not determine your future if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But we have to allow it. So this morning, if you're in here and you would say, I need to accept Jesus Christ right now, I would just ask that you would raise your hand. That you would just declare that by raising your hand, putting your hand up. Just keep those hands up. If you've got a hand up, give me a second to see it. If you're in here and you would say, that's right where I'm at. I need that. I'm tired of my sin. I want it off of me. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that this morning. Specifically, I'm talking about salvation. Specifically, I'm talking about accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're in here and you'd say, that's me, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Okay. Okay, no one raised their hands. So that means I'm going to assume that every single one of us in here have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you would, take a moment and stand with me. If that's the case, if that's the case, I know that Satan does not rest. I know the evil that resides within me. And I know that over and over and over again I fail. That the temptations of the enemy are designed to bring about my destruction. But God takes what was designed to bring about my destruction and turns it into something that brings me strength. What an incredible God we serve. What an incredible God that we have that we can come to knowing that he was tempted every way just as we are. And his love is enough. I don't know if you heard the songs we sang during worship, but over and over it talked about our weakness, in our weakness, that he gave us strength, and he stretched us, and he pushed us further than we expected we could go. This morning, I think we need to give glory to that God, and if during this time you need prayer for anything, we're just going to sing one song. Feel free to come down to the front, and the prayer team will slip in behind you and just pray over you as we worship. Hallelujah you call me